You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Uh, We've already spent some time explaining and practicing look up, right? So depending upon God for interpretation. We've dabbled in the first part of look down by trying to get a big picture of the book of Jonah. Okay, so that's what we've done so far. We've even created a sort of semi-breakup of the book and we've made a good start. Uh, What we're going to do now is look down. Okay, that is, we need to look a bit more at the details of exploring a text of Scripture that God has caused to be inspired so that we might learn more about him, learn how to love him, learn how to obey him and learn his ways in his world. With that in mind, I want to begin with a story. Um, I'm a great avid reader of fiction and lots of other things, uh, but I want you to come with me into the world of Sherlock Holmes. Um, uh, For his purpose, uh, so Sherlock and his friend uh, Watson are going to help us understand one of the most important aspects of uh, understanding a text of scripture. Now you might think that's a very strange place to go, Sherlock Holmes, to get a bit of information about (laughs) interpreting scripture, but not so. So here we go. Dr Watson had seen very little of Sherlock Holmes lately, but now as he walked to his house in Baker Street, the well-remembered door caused him to be seized with a desire to see Holmes again. And so he rang the bell and before long found himself before Holmes, standing before the fire. Holmes waved Watson into an armchair and gave him a good looking over. Wedlock suits you, he remarked. I think, Watson, that you have put on seven and a half pounds since I last saw you. Seven, I answered. Indeed said Sherlock, I should have thought it might even be a little more than that. Just a trifle more, I fancy, Watson. And you are in practice as a doctor again, I observe. So Holmes goes on, in typical Holmes fashion. Okay. Uh, After a few minutes of conversation, he reveals to Watson some intricate details of his life. And it just dazzles Watson. In amazement, Watson claims a exclaims to Holmes that Watson has eyes that are as good as those of Sherlock Holmes, but he does not see what Holmes sees. And Holmes responds with these words, and I want you to grasp them. Quite so, Watson. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. It's that statement by by Holmes that I want you to hear and hear well. You see, Holmes is telling us a truth that we all need to take on board if we're to understand the Bible well. You see, I think for biblical interpretation, it is not enough to just see. What you need to do to do biblical interpretation well is observe. It's not enough to see the text of scripture in front of you. You need to observe it. That's where we're going to turn our focus now to, observing a text. After all, you see, I think observing a passage of Scripture is the heart of looking down at it. That's where you do all the work. And guess where we're going to do it? That's right, Jonah. Okay, so let's get started with observation, the key element in looking down. When you're looking down, you're looking down at the text, you are observing the text. Now, The context is that we have a particular passage on which we've decided to do uh, a bit of work, in-depth study if you like. For example, in our earlier session we saw that the book of Jonah breaks up into four sections. Um, With a larger book we might choose a particular section to study. Um, With a smaller book like Jonah we could even do, we could do the same or we could take the whole book and do observation of the whole lot. Here's what I did. So I want you to follow with me. I'm going to take you on a guided tour of my own work. Okay? First thing I want to do is give you one of my strongest tips for observation. Read the book out loud. Okay? Read the book out loud. It's it's one of the best tips I can give you all day. 
So read it out loud. Why? Because all of Scripture was designed to be read out loud, not in your brain like we do it. All of Scripture was designed to be read out in public. So read it the way it was designed to be read. So doing the task of reading it will, will force you to think about where does emphasis lie here so that I can, for the people that are listening, explain it. Uh, where, what should I, how should I say this with what emphasis uh, because of what this person is doing or that person is doing or whatever. Uh, it will familiarise you in the pa- with the passage in a way that n- very little else will do. Not even listening to it will do it. You just working out where the emphasis is, where to place it and so on. So before we get down to the nitty gritty of observation, read the passage out loud to get the big picture of it. That is one of the best clues you'll get from me today. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But nevertheless, it's a good one. Now, um, I wonder, Heather, will you come and read it for us? Or do you want me to do it? So Heather's going to come and read it. Those of you who were here last night would have heard this, but I'm going to do it again because you can't read it too much. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid and each cried out to their God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing, sound asleep? Get up! Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who's to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by great fear and they said to him, What have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he told them. So they said to him, what shall we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by a great fear of the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish.
three days and three nights, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me, all your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The waters, watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I'll sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I'll fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city, and he proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. And when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne. He took off his royal robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered in sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God and each must turn from his evil ways and from wrongdoing. Who knows? God may return and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so we may not perish. God saw their actions, that they turned from their evil ways so God relented from the disaster he threatened them with, and he did not do it. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head, to rescue him from trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind 
And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labour over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Now, friends, can you see what happens when you read publicly and you know and you've explored the text together, it makes a, a lot of difference. So, once you've done this, you could ask a set of questions of a text. Uh, most of the questions that I'm going to suggest you ask start with the letter W, and one begins with the letter H. Uh, so, the first question is, who? Okay, so, um, what we do here is we ask a whole series of questions, who questions, about the text. For example, who is the writer of the passage? Do we know? Does it matter? Who is the main actor in the story? Is God or is some other person the main actor? If it's another person, who is that person? Who else is involved is the next question. Who meets whom? Who does what to whom? So to do this, you might like to simply write down a list of the people involved. Or you might draw some of the interactions that occur between the people involved. For example, if you're doing this little exercise on the little book of Philemon in the New Testament, you would find out some great things. Uh, for example, you'd find out that the letter is written by the Apostle Paul. It's addressed to Philemon, a Christian who's a friend and a slave owner. It's about a runaway slave called Onesimus. However, if you dig even deeper, you'll notice that the letter is also addressed to other people as well. And you think, ooh... It's an open letter about a private affair. That's pretty brave. Um, that changes the whole dynamic of how you read the, the particular letter, isn't it? Or doesn't it? So the first question is a W question. Who? The second question is another W question. What? Okay, again we ask a whole series of what questions of the text. For example, what happens? What actions does one person do to another person? What are the results of those actions? What ideas are present in the passage? Uh, these what questions are particularly important in narrative uh, parts of the Bible. Very, very important. Ask these questions. And you know what? Narrative takes up about one-third of the Old Testament, of the Bible. For example, the core books of the Old Testament uh, are Genesis to Deuteronomy, and they're set in narrative framework, aren't they? in narrative form. And to understand that narrative, you need to be constantly asking that what question. I'll illustrate each of these questions in a little more detail, or Heather will, using Jonah 1 later. But for the moment, we're just going to go through each one of them in the outline. Okay, so follow with me. We've looked at who, we've looked at what. The next, the next word is where. So what you need to do here, you read through the text again and you say, where does everything happen in this passage? We find all locations mentioned in the passage. We ask ourselves, are they important? If so, why are they important? And we might even ask the from where question, okay, of the letter or the document, that is, where did it come from? Now, sometimes when you're doing this little exercise, it might be helpful to have a map that helps you identify exactly where some of the places are. And here, a Bible atlas helps. I want to suggest to you that if you haven't got a Bible atlas, you want to study the Bible well, get one. And you can get one for relatively cheaply, uh, but you can even get it on the internet quite easily. Okay? Now, a quick internet search will show, it will show you a map, and it will even give you some pictures of common locations mentioned. Uh, the next W word is when. In other words, we look at time within the passage. We read through the passage, we find every reference to time, and we ask, when did that happen? Is the time when that happened important? 
Why is it important if it is important? Is the historical setting important? Why? What time references are given within the passage? Are they important? Why? Do the references to time change? Where? What impact does it have on the meaning of the passage? Now I'll give you a little example from Jonah here. I want you to turn over to Jonah chapter 3 verse 1 and when you look at Jonah 3 verse 1 ask yourself the when question and you'll discover an interesting thing. Give it a try. Have a look now. Ask yourself when the word of the Lord came to Jonah and you'll find it came a second time. Then God says, go to Nineveh. There are references to how long it took to walk to Nineveh, through Nineveh, how long Jonah went into the city before beginning his prophecy, and how long Nineveh was given to repent. So there's lots of time references. Let's move on to the next W word to ask of our passage. It is why. Here you read the passage again, you ask all these sorts of questions. Why do event, these events occur? Why do the main characters do what they do when they do? Does this passage tell us why these events occurred here? Does it tell us why the various people do these various things? Why is this passage important in the Bible at all? What would we lose if we just dropped it out? Why is the author writing? If we move to outside of Jonah for a moment, we could think about a similar uh, we, could, we could think about another passage in the Bible, one that I'm sure most of you will know, David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17. Now, here's, here's a, this is a very interesting set of questions you could ask of that particular story. Why do you think David takes on Goliath? You ask that question, all sorts of possibilities flow through. Is it because of his zeal for God or does he have another motive? Are his motives mixed? His brothers think they are. The why question is a very important question to ask uh, of this well-known passage and is not, often not asked. Or you might ask why Paul is writing his letter to the Romans. Why did he write the book of Romans? Why did he write to that group of people? Or you might ask um, why Jesus doesn't go to heal Lazarus Lazarus, when Mary and Martha asked for his help in John 11, they rebuke him for it, effectively. So that's our last uh, of the W questions. Now turn to the H question. And the question is how? So here we read the passage and we ask ourselves how. For example, how do things happen? How well do they happen? How badly do they happen? What hitches are they? What makes them succeed or fail? How quickly do they happen? By what means do they happen? How does God react? How do the people react? By way of example, if you ask the how question in Exodus chapter 1, you'll find out some very interesting things that you would not find out unless you asked this question. How does God bless his people in Exodus 1? He blesses them through causing them to be fruitful and multiply. How does Pharaoh react to God's blessing of God's people? He works at causing their fruitfulness to be put under threat, doesn't he? How does God counter what Pharaoh does? Well, we're not actually told the answer of this because God becomes quite silent at this point. However, we are told we flip to a couple of midwives who fear God and have spectacular success in preventing Pharaoh's actions. Then we're told about the birth of Moses. Then we're told that various incidents shape the life of this man, Moses, or the, of this person, Moses. Then we hear that God hears about the groaning of his people. So asking the how question helps us see how God responds to Pharaoh and the mechanisms that God uses. So therefore, there, there are our five W questions, our 1H question. Who, what, where, when, how, why and how? Very good questions. Just fire them at the text and see what answers you get back. There's one more thing we can do, though, when we're observing a text. We can keep our eyes peeled for three sorts of special words. Okay, three sorts of special words. Connective words or connecting words. You might call these the little words that mean so much. <laughs> uh, they include words such as for, 
but so that if, as, therefore, because, otherwise, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, some of our more contemporary versions of uh, the Bi- translations of the Bible have dropped them out of translation. They're there in the original text, in the Hebrew text or the Greek text, but they get dropped out by our versions. So, for example, but they're often very important for interpretation. So, for example, the Apostle Paul will often be halfway through a letter. Have you noticed this? And he'll drop a for or therefore into what he says. That's very, very important. Have a look at an example. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul has just spent 11 chapters explaining God's great plan in Jesus and he drops a therefore. And he says in Romans 12 verse 1, therefore, that is in light of everything that I've told you so far, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, because of what I've told you about in the previous 11 chapters, you should respond this way. The word therefore is therefore a very significant reason. Okay? It structures the whole of Paul's thought and his letter. It's a major use of a very little word. So keep an eye on the important words. Keep your eyes open for them. If if necessary, check one or more translations of the Bible to see if there are some that have been dropped out by the translators. If you use a more contemporary version that's designed to be easier to read, then have one that's not so easy to read but has all the technicalities in it, an older one. So keep your eyes peeled for those little words that mean so much. So there's the first group of words to watch out for, the little words that mean so much. Second group, watch for the words that, are, that repeat themselves. Um, I'll, I'll give you a clue about one, one way to read your Bible. Do what I do. In, the, in a world of uh, online, just go and get the text of a, of a literal translation of the Bible download it and I then indent it and it's a great thing to do it's the way I write sermons actually the first thing I do is I download a text I indent it and by the time I've finished indenting I think I know I've got the heart of it and that's when I start then working on the details so second group of words to watch out for are words that repeat themselves often an author will repeat words as ways of highlighting and stressing things Have a look at uh, Psalm 46. I think it's in, it'll be up on the board there, I think. Okay, so have a look at it. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. That's Psalm 46. It's a psalm about the security of God's city. Look at the repetitions. See those repetitions of the word fall there? In verse 2, mountains fall. In verse 6, kingdoms fall. In other words, the created order is in upheaval and the nations are in upheaval. But look at the third reference to falling in verse 5. God is within his city. She will not fall. Why not? Because God's with her and will help her. That's why the rest of the psalm repeats the refrain, the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Can you hear what what I'm saying and emphasizing here? I'm saying that looking at repeated references to fall in this particular psalm, just noticing that there's lots of them, unlocks the core of its meaning. Look for words that are repeated. They're often repeated for very good reason. They're important in meaning. They can often unlock meaning. And you don't just have to stick with single words. Sometimes phrases or even sentences that are repeated can have the same effect. Let's move to the next group of words to keep your eyes open for the action words or verbs, if you like. Verbs or action words carry the story along, so look out for them. Find each one of them. Ask who's doing the action. Ask to whom the action is done. 
Find out whether the action is done in the past, the present or the future. Make a note of any verb that is a command. Now the final, so that's the next group. The final group of words are those that are just interesting in some way or an unusual. Uh, that is, they look out of place in some way and you think, well, why, why has he stuck that one there? Um, they're, words, uh, they're words that uh, look out of place, like I said. They're words that you might not know. That's the other words you might look for. Or words that you don't expect to crop up here. Words that are just bizarre or unusual. Words that make you say, what's all that about? These are the words you might even need a dictionary for. Or words that look out of place. So just ask yourself, why did the author use them? That's our first step in look down. Very important step. Or exegesis if you like. We're to be like Sherlock Holmes. Okay? That is, when he walks into a room... When he meets anyone, he's analysing. Now, so don't just see, observe, watch. Ask questions of the text. Interrogate it with your eyes and your minds. Constantly engaged with it, constantly interpreting. And as you do, let me tell you, once you start, once you start doing this, the text will just open up for you of Scripture. You'll see things you never saw before. You'll find wondrous things that God has incorporated into his word and you'll be drawn into greater wonder of him and you'll know how better to serve him. But I need to tell you a little secret. Once you start thinking this way, you might be a pain to people who love you. <laughs> you'll find yourself always looking at things and asking questions about it. And some family members will become annoyed at you. Believe me, I know. We'll be driving somewhere and I'll say to Heather, look at the hat were you. I wonder why that person's doing that thing. Why? And then you speculate about why it might be. Anyway, that, so be, be aware. Don't be a pain to people like I am to people. Uh, with, so let me quickly give you an example no Heather's going to uh, using Jonah 1 so let's, let's begin looking at Jonah 1 you've heard it read if you were here last night you heard the whole of Jonah read this morning you heard it read again so it should be fairly fresh in your mind be aware that when I read it it was already indented, I'd already thought it through, and I tried to read the meaning into it. So that's what you've already actually heard some of this information just in the reading. So let's get underway. So the first question we're going to ask is who? And often when you start with a book, the first question you ask is, who, who is the writer? Who wrote the book? Does chapter 1 tell us anything about this? It doesn't, does it? So often when you're in a prophet, it will say, the word of the Lord came to this person, and he said, or and then he prophesied. This doesn't tell us who wrote the book. We have no idea. Now, presumably that is because God who is the author of scripture, as well as humankind, didn't think it was important for us to know who wrote the book. So let's just move on from there. But it is helpful. You know, you're reading, you're reading Paul's letters. He'll tell you who wrote the book. Sometimes you're reading other books. They tell you who wrote the book. Luke tells you who wrote the book. But... I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> but... It's so it's important to look for it, but don't try and make it up. If it's not there, that's okay, move on. So let's have a look at the other who's in this passage. Who appears in this chapter? So the first person who appears is the Lord. Now, if you've been reading your Bibles, we, we kind of know who that is. So when we read about the Lord, we know who the Lord is. And second person mentioned is Jonah. We don't know a lot about Jonah at this point, except that we're told 
He's the son of Amittai. Now, if you then go, who is this Jonah? And you do a quick search of your Bible, you'll discover that he's also mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. So maybe there's two Jonahs, son of Amittai, but maybe this is the same one. And if he is the same person, he was exercising ministry during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. Um, so Jeroboam reigned between um, 786 to 746 BC, if you're interested. But it's just helpful to know who the king was when he was exercising you know, um, ministry. It also tells us in that passage that he comes from a place called Gat Hefer. So this is a place in northern Israel, and you can look that up on a map. Then there's a third group of people, third who, and they are the Ninevites. We're not even out of the first three verses yet, and we've heard of three groups. So all that's mentioned here are a group called the Ninevites, and all that we know about them is that they're wicked. And their wickedness is so great, it's come up and offended God. So we've got the Lord, Jonah, and the Ninevites. Then we meet a fourth group. They're the sailors, and we meet them in verse 5. So we know Jonah has got on a ship, and we meet the sailors in verse 5, and their captain in verse 6. Later in the chapter, they're referred to as men, because we presume that when it talks about the men, it's referring back to the sailors. And the final character in this chapter is not a person, it's a fish. But it plays a very important role, so we mustn't miss it. So we'll, we'll come back to all of these things later, but at the moment it's just important to think about who we've met. Then we need to think, so we've got five characters in this chapter. Who's the main character? Is it the Lord? Is it Jonah? Is it the Ninevites, the sailors, or the fish? We know it starts with the Lord. He's the agent who first spoke. He sent Jonah to Nineveh, but then Jonah didn't go. He pursued Jonah through the storm, and he also appointed the fish. So he does a lot in this. But if you read the book and you read this chapter and you think about who the main character, it actually appears to be Jonah. And the focus seems to be on Jonah and his attitudes. So the Lord is acting, but the focus is on Jonah, what he does and how he responds. Later we're going to look at that and we're going to look at how this is actually highlighted in the chapter itself. But for the moment, you can recognize that it's his words, his actions, and his rescue that provide the focus. Now, let's move on to the next observation question, which is what? So what is, what happens here? So one way of looking at the what is to say, we know who the who's are. So let's put them in one column. Now let's analyse what happens to each of the who's. So if you're, this will appear on the screen now. We're, we're going to look at the first character. The first character we saw was the Lord. So what did the Lord do? Well, in verse 1, we find out that he sends his words to Jonah. Verse 2. He tells Jonah to preach against Nineveh. Verse 4, after Jonah's run away, he sends a great 
wind to cause a storm. In verse 7, he causes the lot to fall on Jonah. Now, this isn't said explicitly, but it seems to be implied. So it just says the lot fell to Jonah. And then verse 17, he appoints a huge fish to swallow Jonah. So there's a lot of actions happening. So as we look at the what here, we find out that God is very active. Then the Ninevites, they're our second who. The only thing we really know about the Ninevites is that their wickedness has caused God to act. So in a way, they are the cause of the whole book. So let's have a look at our third character, Jonah. So Jonah receives the word of God in verse 1. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But instead of obeying the word or responding to the word, his response is to run away towards Tarshish. So that's in um, 3 onwards. He's basically hiking as far as he can get away from the presence of God. The other thing Jonah does is he sleeps. He doesn't just go to sleep, he goes right down into the depths below, below the deck. And that's in verse 5. When the sailors ask him what he's, what he's about, he speaks of his fear of the Lord. I think in the CSV it refers to it as worship, but the word is actually fear, and we'll come to why that's important later. That's in verse 9. So he says, I fear the Lord, which is similar to worship, but the word is actually fear. And then he tells the sailors to cast him into the sea. That's not something I think I would have done, but Jonah did it. He's obviously determined to get away from God. So that's Jonah. Now, we need to think of why did he flee to Tarshish? Does anyone know where Tarshish is? The scholars don't, so I'd be surprised if any of you guys know. <laughs> they guess, but they don't really know. Um, in Isaiah 66, 19, it says it's a place where, the, where God's glory or fame is not known. So what are we told in Jonah? Jonah is fleeing from the presence of God. Maybe it's because God's glory is not known in Tarshish. Jonah says he fears God, but he doesn't act like it. He's running from God. Jonah also knows that God can control the weather and that the reason the storm came because of him. And he also knows that get rid of him and the problem will be solved. That tells us a lot about Jonah and it gives us insight into his attitude towards God. Now let's look at the sailors. So the sailors are also a key player in this chapter. Um, when we ask what they do, it's really clear. The sailors fear and cry out to their gods. That's verse 5. So their response when a storm hits is not to go to sleep, but to call out to the ones they think are in power. They choose to cast lots to determine, determine responsibility in verse 7. They quiz Jonah about who he is in verse 8. They fear exceedingly or are terrified because of what Jonah has told them in verse 10. And they ask Jonah what to do. And that's in verse 12. When Jonah says, throw me into the sea, they try and avoid doing that by rowing trying to row to shore. That's verse 13. And then they call upon the Lord 
and asked not to be held accountable for what they're about to do before they throw him in the sea. So you've got to ask, I think, with all of these things that the sailors have done, why they try and avoid throwing Jonah overboard. He's the one that came on. He's running away from the Lord who made the heavens and the sea. He says, throw me in the sea. They don't want to. You'll notice that they have great respect for the Lord and that they reflect that in their actions, in their prayer uh, before they throw Jonah in and in their prayer at the end. Now let's turn to the captain and the fish. When we ask what for the captain and the fish, the captain calls upon Jonah. He, he basically says, just what on earth are you doing? Get up and call to your God. Like, we've tried ours, now let's try yours. Um, the fish just swallows Jonah. It does what God says. It's probably the most obedient who in the passage. So what do we find out about this? First, it's really clear that God is the creator. Jonah tells us that. He's the maker of the heavens and the earth. And we see that he's also sovereign. He controls the sea and he appoints a fish. Like, I don't know if you've tried to do that. I've been fishing, tried to tell them to come. They don't come. Second, he's a redeemer of his people. He rescues Jonah and spares the sailors. So Jonah's been disobedient. He doesn't deserve rescue. The sailors worship other gods. They don't deserve rescue. But God rescues. And third, they tried every god they knew and the only one who could do something was Yahweh, the true God. The fourth thing to notice is that there's a difference between the sailors and Jonah. So when you read chapter 1, we said that in a way Jonah is the key figure, but he's not the hero. The sailors are. At the beginning, they're not believers, but by the end, they're sacrificing and vowing to God. Jonah says he fears God, but he doesn't do anything that shows that he really does. And so you can see that by asking who and what, we've already discovered an awful lot about the text. So some of the answers to our next questions will be a little bit repetitive, but we can still work through them. So when you're doing this in a passage, sometimes you'll ask these, you'll suddenly discover, hey, I've already answered half of these questions on the way. So let's look at the third W, and that is where. So this is pretty straightforward in Jonah 1. There are only a few locations mentioned. We've got Nineveh, Joppa, Tarshish, and the sea, and probably also the ship which is on the sea because it's it's a place. Um, you know, Jonah goes down into the depths of the ship and stuff like that. So the most important ones of these appear to be Nineveh and Tarshish. So like we looked at before, Tarshish, nobody really knows where it is, but if you do a, a word search in the Bible for Tarshish, you'll find that the name can refer to a person in Genesis 10.4 or a place in Psalm 48.7. And there are other references in um, Psalm 72.10 and Isaiah 23.6 and 69, which speak of it as a place of great ships. So in other words, it's a trading port. Um, so you imagine it as a... That, that probably explains why the boat is going there. But like I said before, Isaiah 66, 19 links it with Libya, Lydia, Tubal, 
Greece and other distant islands that haven't heard the Lord's fame or seen his glory. And so if you search Bible dictionaries, you've got no definite, nobody really knows where it is. But probably the key is when you link it with away from the presence of the Lord, that it is the Isaiah 66 passage, i.e. it's a place where God is not known. The city of Nineveh is mentioned 21 times in, in the book of Jonah. Nine of these references, sorry, in the, in the Old Testament. Nine of these references are concern the story of Jonah, seven in the book itself and two in the New Testament, and they're in Matthew 12, 41 and Luke eleven thirty two. So if you look up Nineveh and Assyria, um, you'll, I think we've got a map coming up, you can actually see where Nineveh is. So can you see it up there at the top, um, Nineveh near Assyria? So the other thing that we find out in um, Jonah 1 is that Nineveh is a big city. It's a great city. It's a large and important city and it's a bad city. So in 1, 2, we find that out. In 3, 2 to 3, we find out more about how big it is. And in 4.11, we find out even more. So that's where we find out it's got 120,000 people and lots of cattle. Um, it is known to God because of its wickedness. And this is similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. You all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and that probably gives us enough of an idea of what Nineveh was like. So let's turn to the next next W word, and that is when. So Andrew's already mentioned this a little bit. Um, if you, but if you turn to Jonah 1, we're not actually given any time frame of when this occurred. All we know is it occurred when Nineveh was a great evil city um, and Jonah was around. So there are only two time references in history. So it probably occurred during Jeroboam II's reign, um, but not, it's not a great thing made of the location in history. So the next thing is to think about any other time references that appear important or if there are any um, changes in tenses and things like that. And again, there's not really all that much significant here. So the when is obviously not all that important. Then we move to why. Now we're beginning to get into interpretation properly. Um, but there's a little bit of difficulty in this because the passage doesn't say anything explicitly about this. We've already decided that Jonah is an anti-hero. He is, he is the focus of this chapter, but he is not the hero of the chapter. And if you look at the calling of other prophets, they may argue, you'll probably remember Moses, he pulled out lots of arguments, but he eventually obeyed. Or Jonah doesn't even stop to talk to God, he just says, okay, run away. So we get this idea that he knows who God is, he recognises God's sovereignty and power, but really does not want to go to Nineveh. We're not sure um, why at this point. We're going to find that out a little bit later. So his, his role as an anti-hero is emphasised in the narrative by the godliness of the sailors. These are pagans, these are Gentile sailors, and yet they are worshipping God. So we've got a lot of questions to ask. Um, we've kind of found out a lot about the passage just by asking these questions. And then we come to the how. And we find out when we come to how, we've 
covered most of these areas already. Um, we've looked at how things happen, by what means they happen. We've noticed how God reacts. Remember, Jonah runs away and then God sends the storm. We haven't yet been told what God thinks of his prophets, um, but we've got most of the information. So now we'll look at the key, key words. So we're down to our last area. Um, the first sort of key words are the connective words that we were talking about, the little words that mean so much. Um, and here translation matters. So when you're looking for connecting words, it's often helpful to have a couple of translations open um, because sometimes they're dropped out. So the first one in this chapter of Jonah is actually in verse 3, but the CSV misses it. So if you've got the ESV or the NIV, it will pick it up. It is, but Jonah got up to flee. So God speaks. You're expecting Jonah to get up and go, but, in, but Jonah got up to flee. Um, the second connective is translated um, but in the CSV, um, CSV, and it's in verse 4. Uh, that, so this is but God acts. In ESV, it's translated then God. It, it's the same, like you could translate it either way. But it's quite important because God speaks, but Jonah flees. Then or but God says you're not getting away with that. So that particular but shows that God doesn't accept Jonah's rebellion. Then there is a so in verse 11, a nevertheless in verse 13, a then in verse 15, and finally in the ESV we see now in verse 17. So there's nothing there in the CSV. This is where you notice that you are actually dependent on your translator as to whether or not they include them. That's why it's helpful to, to compare occasionally. Um, and you can actually uh, also check a commentary to see if they have, because connectors are not always significant, but sometimes they are, but sometimes they are. Um, then we're looking for repetitions. Now, there is a very significant repetition in Jonah. Um, in the um, CSB, the word is through or throw, depends on what tense you're in. In the ESV, it is hurl. So this is the ESV, and I'm going to read it out for you. But the Lord, so but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Okay, then that is in verse 4. We get to verse 5. The sailors hurled the cargo that was in the ship to lighten it from them. But Jonah had gone down and was having a good rest. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Now, the reason why the ESV is up there is because the CSV has the repetition, but it uses the word throw or through. And that we don't notice that as much. It's kind of not as dramatic. But actually, the word used is dramatic. It has that sense of force. Um, the other word that is repeated a lot is the word fear or afraid. Um, so in verse 5, the mariners were afraid and each called out to their God and then they hurled. Um, then in verse 9, I am Hebrew and I fear. Now in the CSB, this fear, this particular fear, is worship. 
I worship God. Uh, but in fact, the ESV's got it more correct. It's I fear God, fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Uh, that is in verse 10. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. I think the CSB has seized by a great fear. The men were seized by a great fear. Then the men were seized by a great fear. So you, the only one the CSB misses out is I fear the Lord. So did we have the... No, we don't have... We didn't have those ones. Okay. So... As you can see, when you look at the repetition, you start to see a pattern. You start to see a little bit more of what sits behind Jonah 1. Um, and so we're going to finish there. Andrew's going to, we're finishing the session now um, and having a break. We're going to be doing more work on Jonah 1 a little bit later once we have a little bit more information. But this gives you an idea of how to unpick a passage. And you'll notice that as you notice this, the, the hurling and the fearing, as you notice the who and what, why, when and how, that the passage starts to open up and you can begin to see what it means.